Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Doug Schaefer with another edition of The Taste. So glad you've joined us again. I think we've got a great one for you with a father and son team from a fantastic Napa Valley winery. I've been trying to get these two on for a long time and we've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Doug Schaefer with another episode of The Taste. Today we've got uh, John and Rory Williams, father-son team running a well-known, very successful, long-term family winery here in the Napa Valley, Frog's Leap. Welcome, guys. Hey, Doug. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having us on. You bet. Rory, I think I first met or saw you as a little kid at some soccer game or elementary school with my kids or probably riding shotgun in your dad's pickup truck a million years ago. Well, not that long ago. That's, I think I was probably I, driving him home from a restaurant, you know, there five you years go. old. There you go. And John, you know, I can't, I, I was racking my brain last night. I don't remember when we met. I just, I know you were pals with my dad. You guys were both Cornell alums and, you know, Rory too. But our paths across for all these years, but I really, you know, remember spending more time with you back in the late 80s when you introduced me to Amigo Bob, uh, which we'll talk more about that later. But hey, can you remember when we met? Any ideas? You know, I was thinking about it as well, Doug, and I, I really don't. Obviously, it, it kind of folded in with your your dad and I were such buds and always on Vintner trips together and hanging out with uh, some of the other characters of that era. And, uh, you know, but then our... Um, you know, our kids were uh, were growing up at the same time, so it, it's all kind of uh, tumbled up in there. Um, and, you know, I, I, re- I remember as you started getting involved uh, with the winery that uh, there was certainly a little more interaction at that point. But uh, I, I think it just unfolded over time, basically. I, it's just we've we've grown up together. I'm not going to say we've grown <laughs> old together, but we're just we're still gro- <laughs> we're still growing together. <laughs> but you guys, thanks both of you for doing this. Uh, I've been looking forward to doing this for a while. Um, a lot to cover, John. There's your story, the story of Frog's Leap, Rory. I know there's a lot to your story. We'll get to that in a bit. So it's going to be fun. But before we start with John, we we had a, a something happen here. Uh, Rory, you're nice to be wide awake i don't know if you're wide awake because i heard you didn't get much sleep last night what what happened last night kind of a late frost it was pretty crazy um it got cold here in rutherford um we were up at two o'clock in the morning and frost fans were on we turned water on it was a it was a busy night for sure nothing extremely dangerous here in the valley but i know that in some of the outer valleys child's valley pope valley it was it was cold um, yeah. These are kind of these are kind of the days of killer frost. You get one now. There's not much not much you can do to come back from it. So, yeah, I'm with so. you. We you know, we haven't talked about frost on this thing, which is uh, you know I think we try not to get too techy, but normal frost. <laughs> it's also generally like, a good thing if you're not talking about frost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no news no is good good news. But normally by early May, which is is right now, you know frost season is past the danger. But we had a cold one last night, and uh, some people, fortunately not John or me anymore, but. <laughs> the younger generation has to get up at so Rory, you're up at what one or two two o'clock in the morning um everything was uh starting to get cold so drag myself out of bed and start to check machines turn on machines make sure everything's working uh you know normal frost night stuff and uh look forward to the nap in the in the morning Got it. Do you, do you actually go home and nap? Or do some, I know some guys just sleep in their trucks. <laughs> <laughs> I 
right now I, I I get it better than that. I get to go home and uh, make my two year old breakfast. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's oh, just man, a that, way of waking up, I suppose. That brings back memories. Oh man. All right. Well, listen. I'm gonna, you know, hit your dad Hurley here. So take a take a little snooze here for a minute if you want. Um, Sounds good. I'll catch you guys you in de- 20 you minutes. Des- you deserve it. Um, <laughs> all right, John. You. We start with you. Now I know you're from New York, and if I've done my research right, I think you grew up on a dairy farm in New York, right? Well, that's a little bit of a controversy. I I, I got farmed <laughs> out from my family uh, uh, regularly every summer uh, down to my grandfather's dairy farm. My okay. uh, dad was smart enough to get out of dairy at some point and got into other things that didn't make any money. Uh, but uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's dairy farm, so that's where that's where that story comes from. And uh, uh, you know, it, it certainly instructed me. Uh, I grew, grew up in agriculture, that's for sure. Yeah. And family, you got brothers, sisters. We've never had this chat. <laughs> yep, brother and two sisters. To uh, you know, Ralph and Alice, uh, mom and dad. Uh, very typical rural um, family background for sure. Uh, church and uh, and community and school and uh, and that's about it. What part? What part of New York? What town? Chautauqua County is the little corner of New York over uh, by Lake Erie. In fact, Erie, Pennsylvania is the closest city to where we grew up. But there's a little ski resort there, and our farm was right um, right below the ski resort. And it's all dairy country, and uh, now a lot of Amish. Uh, it's a very depressed uh, area, but most of my family still lives in that in that area of the country. Okay, all right. How about wine? Was that part of the, the household beverage at that time? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Come on, that's a good, yeah. it's not nice question. Yeah, my, <laughs> yeah, we were. Uh, my family didn't drink and uh, considered uh, sin against God to drink. As a matter of fact, so I did not grow up with much of a wine background. But you know, it is a grape country, and so uh, my first job actually was with Welch's grape juice. And in fact, uh, communion in the church was not wine, but uh, grape juice. It was a uh, it was a sad state of affairs, as I later came to realize. <laughs> And uh, so high school was back there. What were what was what were you doing in high school? What were you into? Well, you know, it was a small school. I think there were uh, fifty four kids in my class, and so you were everything. And so uh, you know, you, you're in the band, you're in the chorus, you're in the student council, you're in the uh, debate society, you're in you play every one of the sports just because they wouldn't have enough kids on the team otherwise. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was just uh, it was a uh, you know. Ozzy and Harriet, basically, it was a, it was an old school. Neat, neat, and uh, ended up right to Cornell after high school. Is that how it went? Yeah, I was really fortunate. I, uh, you know, I was a good enough student, I guess, but not a brilliant academic. But I uh, uh, had a guidance counselor who believed in me and uh, and uh, decided I was going to go to Cornell. Almost, I mean, my family didn't really have those kind of aspirations, but I got a scholarship to go to Cornell University and. Uh, Never really been out of the area. It certainly was a revelation because when I enrolled at Cornell, it was a time of the whole uh, civil rights movement. It was a time of the Vietnam War protests. There was a lot of experimentation with things that I would have not considered otherwise in Clymer. And so it was a, it was a, uh, it was a real eye-opening experience for me and brought me into a, a whole different world. And then, of course, I, I ran out of money after my first year and had to get a, a – a job, and uh, that's when I got the work study program with the Taylor Wine Company, which was my first introduction to wine. So all this happened in a very short period of time, and was the fundamental uh, change in my uh, my uh, life decisions, I guess you'd say. So you're working at Taylor. What were you doing at the Taylor Wine Company? 
they had a program with the university uh, where you could uh, – I was essentially an intern, but I worked in every department. And this uh, Taylor at that point was a family-owned winery making uh, god-awful wines from Concord and Catawba and Niagara, the Labrusca varieties, which they were very proud of. But they are only made palatable by bringing in large tankfuls of wine from California out of the Central Valley to blend with these Labrusca varieties to make them somewhat uh, palatable, very sweet, and – and this was my introduction to wine. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it was right up there with Boone's Farm and Ripple, I'm afraid, um, some of these wines. But uh, I had no idea at that point. I discovered fairly shortly afterwards that there were better wines made in the world, and it didn't take me long to incorporate those into my uh, into my life. Hey, man, I, don't knock Boone's Farm. That was that was my first wine. I was on, back, back in the summers on the beach oh, in Michigan. Oh, there you go, bragging again, Schaefer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, man, we, people have heard this story. Boone's Farm was the go-to, well, along with a lot of beer. This is summers in Michigan. But if you want to impress somebody, like a, a, a girl, um, you got a bottle of Matus because it had that really cool bottle. That was the. Uh, oh, was, yeah. That yeah. Was, no, that I was, kept one in my room and had the little dust on it, claiming uh, it was one of the last smuggled out of It never worked, but I always <laughs> thought it might. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't had the same this conversation before. We've got similar paths. So, so, Taylor Wine Company, so is that when the wine bug kicked in? Is that what happened? Well, I don't know if you've ever been to the Finger Lakes there, but the you know the the vineyards cascade right down to these beautiful lakes and the little communities, and then the going to this big winery with big tanks of booze and pretty girls giving tours and not a cow in sight. And it didn't take me long to raise my hand saying, "I think I can do this." So it was a fundamental, uh, life changing path. It was really that moment, uh, you know, your aha moment. Uh huh. So you did you. Because I think the next thing I have is, you know, somehow you made your way out to Napa. Was that after Cornell or you just you just got in a, you know, you just, you know, tell me about getting to Napa. What was that all about? Well, I worked every other semester uh, at the winery. And so I worked everything from grower uh, support to the vineyards, to the labs, to, you know, um, uh, marketing and purchasing. It was a really a, a very interesting experience at a bigger winery. And um, But uh, Cornell didn't have a winemaking department at that point. They, they have an excellent one now, and mm-hmm. uh, Roy can talk about that. Uh, but at that point, the only thing that was close by was actually uh, uh, ch- uh, dairy fermentation. So I got my degree in cheese making at Cornell. <laughs> so don't, <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone. Um, and, but they didn't have a winemaking program. But I, I knew I was going to get into wine. And, of course, everything was just starting to happen. Remember that we're talking 72, 73. So Robert Mondavi Winery was just you know six or seven years old, all these wineries. Uh, we're starting up. There was a lot of excitement about the Napa Valley, which I was hearing about. And so literally in the in the spring break of um, 1975, I got the $69 Ameripass on the Greyhound bus and uh, set off for California. And five days later, I found myself in California um, with uh, 40 bucks in my pocket. I didn't know anyone, didn't have a job, and uh, I never used the return ticket. And wow. said, I'm just going to stay in the Napa Valley and make it happen. Wow. I'm now $22 million in debt. It's going real good. (laughs) Oh, man. Come on. Stop. Stop. You've been super successful. You know it. Um, So you show up. You don't know anybody. You have no money. Were you thinking UC Davis? Um, There's the famous story about, you know, you illegally camping on somebody's property we need to hear about. What, What happened? Well, I had a, a young woman in my tasting group, uh, Helen Turley, uh, at Cornell, and she thought her brother had a place out here. She didn't have a phone number, but she had an address. So 
I hitchhiked up from Vallejo on a Sunday evening, and uh, there was no one at the house. It was abandoned, uh, <laughs> and, and and should be. It didn't. Uh, no one could live there except for me that night. And uh, but Larry uh, showed up on his motorcycle the next morning at uh, I don't know six o'clock in the morning, and. Uh, Fortunately, I had a bottle of um, of wine in my tent with me, and we got into that and drank a couple other bottles, and, and that's when we decided to start a winery together. So that's how I met the the famous car- uh, character Larry Turley, who eventually became my partner in starting Frog's Leap in 1981. So Helen, so that's where Helen came from. Corn- she, you met her at Cornell. I never knew that. I never knew she was there. How cool! Because she and Larry were brother and sister. So. Okay, so that's how that happened. So you and Larry, now, was Larry a doctor at the time or studying to be one? Because I know he was an ER doc for a long time. Yeah, he was, uh, he was actually coming off from shift when we met uh, the next morning. And so, uh, yeah, he was an emergency room physician over in Santa Rosa. Wow. Okay, so that was the start of your guys' partnership, which we'll get to in a minute. But, you know, what was, what was Napa like back then? And uh, it was 71, 75, he said? 75 and yeah. it was uh well you, you know uh you you, you were you were around it was pretty rural and, yeah and there was not much happening here and <clears throat> st helena was unrecognizable to to in places like yonville were just backwaters and napa itself of course was uh, not much going on so it was a uh, it was a distinctly different place i think 75 was the last year there were more prunes planted in the napa valley than grapes right right i do remember that um, and so, so you jump in, and I, it's jumbled for me because I think there's UC Davis stuff. There's working at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. What, what? How'd you get going those first couple of years? Yeah, well, I, I managed to talk my way into UC Davis, um, but I didn't have any money, so I had to work too. And Larry had some friends who were bottling their first wine, so I get to, a job as the first employee of uh, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, and uh, so I started at Stag's Leap in '75. So I was. Uh, Working summers and um, evening shift uh, during harvest at Stag's Leap, taking classes at UC Davis and sleeping at the Frog Farm. So I had a little Honda 350 motorcycle that got me between all three of these places. And uh, (laughs) that's how I made my way for about a year until I could get some more permanent housing. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's crazy. So Davis, were you going, were you just taking classes or were you going for, going actually for a degree? Yeah, I got my master's degree in 77, okay. so I was uh, I was in I think I I was probably in graduate school at the same time you were in undergrad if I if I remember my timing on this right. That's about right. Yeah, I was still undergrad and I was there at between 74 and 78, right? But see by 77 I had decided I wanted to teach school, so instead of taking a lot of upper division enology, I started taking ed psych and all that stuff. So I missed out on some of those. I probably didn't I don't think our paths crossed then, but I was Hang with some other folks. Who were who were some of your peers there at the, that time? Well, I think you've talked to a few of them: uh, John Johnny Consgard and um, Mike Martini and Dick Ward, Dave Graves. Uh, Dan Lee was my roommate my uh, my last year there from Morgan Winery. Right. Um, you know the whole there was a whole group of us. Uh, Lee Hudson. Uh, you know there was a there was a whole group that have gone on to uh, uh, to be. You know Kathy Corson was in the lab with me. Tom Peterson. Uh, just a number of that, that that whole class is really a remarkable class of uh, uh, young people. I, I didn't get to hang out with them as much as I would have liked and that I was, um, you know, I was working uh, by night and I was doing my uh, thesis work at Robert Mondavi and I you know, did it on clarification methods and was using their centrifuge. So I'd go working harvest uh, from harvest. We'd clean up 11 o'clock at night. So at um, 
at Stagsleep, and then I'd go over to Mondavi and do my thesis work uh, until about you know six or seven o'clock in the morning. And then I'd ride over and and uh, you know uh, do class, and then I'd be back over to Stagsleep. So <laughs> the only time I actually slept was while I was in class, I think. Uh, so I didn't get to hang out as much as I would have liked. Yeah, you were busy. It was a crazy time. You was, yeah, was crazy. But time. yeah, but but. I, Am I wrong? Was it just great? Did you just love it? Oh my God! I mean, uh, you know, it was so thrilling, and uh, you know, we we had a sense of the kind of wines that we could make uh, in Napa, and and this whole crew of of uh, uh, people like your dad and Dan Duckhorn and uh, Kerner Rombauer, and I mean, there was just a whole bunch of us who were. Uh, um, you know, excited. Uh, Jack and uh, Jamie Davies were good friends. So it was that whole uh, movement of time that I kind of got sucked into as well. And I spent as much time with that group as I did with my Davis. But between the between them all, it really was a remarkable, just unbelievable experience. It was a it was a neat time, really. Um, and none of us kind of I don't think we really realized it, you know, how neat it was. But um, it, it was it was a changer for this valley for sure. So you're you're getting out of Davis, and then so I'm thinking you're going to start Frog's Leap, but I'm doing some research on you. You went back and got a job in New York making wine, right? Is that what happened? Yeah, when I graduated in '77, there were lots of assistant winemaker jobs available here, but I got an offer to uh, go back and be a startup winemaker, including designing the winery and equipping it and so on. And I thought that that would be great experience. I felt I guess I had a little bit of debt. Uh, back in New York State, uh, my uh, original uh, time there, and uh, and I had some good friends like uh, Herman Veemer, who uh, of course has gone on to make these fantastic Rieslings. Uh, so I, I knew I could sense the potential. I'd hung out enough with Dr. Constantine Frank and was inspired by him, and I knew there was potential for great wine there. Um, and so uh, had I not met a California girl while I was in New York, I probably uh, would still be there. Uh, but uh, when I met Julie, we uh, decided to, uh, <laughs> a condition of the, of the uh, agreement was to uh, move back to California. So back I came in uh, 1980 to take the head winemaking job at Spring Mountain Vineyards. And that's when Larry and I reconnected and said, Let's, instead of making illegal amounts of homemade wine, why don't we make the, uh, a little wine on our own? And that's when we started Frog Sleep in 1981. Okay, so it was eighty-one. So, seriously, um, Frog's Leap—you know—it's—it's it's, it's still a kind of off-the-wall name. So, what's the people? <laughs> people need to know the story. How did you know? What did you guys do? Like focus groups and talk to consumers? How'd you do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it kind of happened to us. Uh, uh, you know, people say, "How'd you get the name Frog's Leap?" And I had to admit that we'd been drinking. Um, you know, we we made no, them. We were really. Making... <laughs> I can't believe that. You two guys, no way. <laughs> we were making wine. Our first little batch of wine were some grapes. We uh, first had all you need to know that Larry's place. We started fixing it up and uh, discovered in the process that it had been a um, commercial frog raising farm. So it, we called it the Frog Farm. And then, okay. uh, you know, we we got our first a little batch of grapes. There were six uh, Chardonnay vines that had been misbudded in the uh, cast twenty three, or when it went on to be the. Uh, the SLV vineyard uh, that uh, Warren, I think, gave me the fruit, and we made a little five-gallon jug of wine, and uh, it was still fermenting one night, but we ran out of other stuff to drink, so I think we drank something like four of the five gallons, and oh. in honor of Stag's Leap, where we procured the grapes and uh, the frog farm where we made the wine, someone came up 
with this frog sleep, and we just thought it was hilarious, and uh, <laughs> so we started calling our homemade wine frog sleep, and uh, and then we started selling it, and before we knew it, uh, it was in the New York Times and getting distributors, and 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 we're just like, well, what are we going to do now? We can't call a winery frog sleep, but um, and we're kind of stuck with it 42 years later, I guess. No, it's been it's been a great run. Um, sorry, so you mentioned Spring Mountain. So Spring Mountain that was Mike Robbins' own Spring Mountain Winery, just just right right next to St. Helena. So you got the head winemaking job. You're starting to do Frog's Leap with Larry on the side. Um, Spring Mountain, which today's listeners will have to go back to YouTube to look it up, but there was the uh, place where they filmed a TV show called Falcon Crest. Um, <laughs> yeah. So were you there? Were you, were you there for all that filming? Yeah, I, I was, and uh, it's uh, definitely part of why I left. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, because it was quite the hot show at the time. God knows why, but yes, indeed, and um, it was. Uh, I, you, you know as well as I do that. Um, I'll tell one story: is that uh, when you're bottling, you're nervous as a winemaker. It's only bad things can happen when you bottle wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were bottling, and uh, this guy comes in because they had the trailers there. They were filming the pilot for Falcon Crest, and he says, uh, "All this machinery is making too much noise. So we're going to ask you to uh, uh, shut down for a while while uh, Miss Wyman gets her nap in her trailer." And oh, I told her, man. I said, Gee, you could tell Miss Wyman that we're not shutting down the equipment. Uh, we're, we're bottling wine, and uh, we're not going to be shutting down any equipment. And about uh, uh, 15 minutes later, Mike walks in and says, why don't we all take a break for the rest of the day? And oh, uh, that's when no. I knew I was going to have to leave Spring Mountain because oh, uh, filming this TV show became had become more important to the owner than uh, than making wine. Got it. And then uh, we'll get Roy, we'll see if Roy's we've got to wake Roy. I'll up wake here. him up here. Wake him up. <laughs> um, so right now we're I'm looking at Roy. I think 1984. You burst on the scene. Is that the right year? Yeah, that's what they tell me. Yeah. Okay. So firstborn of John and Julie's, and I think 84 was that the first leap year party also. I think that was the first leap year party. Uh, mustards, if I'm right, Dad. Correct. Well, I'm sure Rory probably wasn't there, but I think I'm sure John was. I'm sure I was too, but obviously can't remember that one. Um, if people don't realize every four years on uh, February 29th, is that correct, and leap year, there's an annual Frog's Leap party, which is, uh, oh my gosh, it's it's um, renowned. It's um, There's too many stories to go into. We won't do that here, but suffice to say it's an experience. Um so Rory's born, John. You're when did so when did you make the move from Spring Mountain? Was that eighty four, eighty five? Yeah, about that time. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, we I had we had to mix it in with uh, some consulting jobs to make ends meet, but uh, we we pretty much decided uh, about eighty five, eighty six that uh, we were going to be able to make a go of it at um, uh, and turn this into a real winery, and uh, and so we we kind of jumped in with both feet and uh, started to make it happen at that point. So that's and that's making it right at the original uh, the frog farm Larry's property. That's where you guys started. Well, it was a mixture. That was a pretty small place with uh, limited facilities, but we started to redo it. But uh, yeah, we we were doing some crust and crushing. We were had a barrel storage unit. Well, you know you know how when you bootleg these projects without a lot of money, it uh, you do just whatever you have to do to to get it going. We didn't have any vineyards at that point either, so we were buying fruit and. Uh, um, it was definitely bootstrapping. Mm -hmm. 
definitely. And that's um, that's about the time period in the late 80s. I, I remember it's 1988, 89. You called me up and said, Schaefer, you got to meet this guy. I said, who's that? He go, you said, it's Amigo Bob. I said, you're kidding, right? He goes, no. He was ser- and you were like really serious. He said, Schaefer, you got to meet this guy. And we met over at Sinsky. You and Amigo Bob and I went over and met in, at Rob Sinsky's place. And uh, I walk in, and this guy is big, burly, handsome guy, long hair, shorts. It was January. It's cold. You know, Birkenstock sandals. got a tie-dye T-shirt. He's a deadhead. And uh, one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met in my life. But talk about Amigo Bob a little bit, John, because you had such great times with him, and he taught us all so much. I mean, um, um, organic farming is, uh, and we've been certified organic now for 35 years at Frog's Leap. So we were early advocates and um, and learners about organic farming. And my mentor and my uh, teacher was this guy, Amigo Bob, who... Really didn't have a lot of experience in vineyards, but he didn't. He was about the only one. We're talking, yeah, as you mentioned, um, late um, late eighties. Um, not many people had knowledge about how to farm anything organically, um, much less grapes. And uh, uh, but we uh, we brought it, we invited him over to meet a few growers, and uh, we committed to farming our own uh, vineyards, which we were just starting to acquire at that point, and um, and decided that organic farming was going to be part of our future, and we. You, you know, farming organically by being the only one doesn't work in organic farming. You need to inspire others. And uh, and so we started uh, uh, the first organic wine school in 1989 and really started to uh, uh, teach others and, and get others involved, including, uh, thankfully, you guys and uh, and uh, Rob and a number of other people. And, uh, and uh, well, I'm proud to say that there are now more certified organic vineyards in Napa County than any other county in uh, in California, and that's because of all the work that uh, that you guys did, that we did, uh, and certainly Amigo Bob, who at one point had something like uh, 30 or 40 clients here in Napa. No, he was great. He tossed so much, and you know, listen, you need to give yourself credit. You were the major force in this valley, getting people away from the traditional um, farming and, and chemical use in the vineyards and you know I remember when we started with them and it, it wasn't you know instant success it was you learned I mean this cover crop thing you know was a which is great now because we all know how to do it but at first it's like oh I didn't mow it in time or oh I mowed it too soon or you know my my vineyard guys would come to me on the week on Monday mornings and said hey I was at a barbecue yesterday and all my friends are giving me a hard time because our vineyard looks so trashy <laughs> because it wasn't buffed out and nuked, you know, all the weeds and all that stuff. So there was a whole learning curve here just to say, hey, this is okay. This is how it works. And there's it's long-term benefits. And, it, and there are long-term benefits. They need to take time. They got to be patient. But it's, uh, it was, uh, I was very aware of just the whole mindset change from just that. And Amigo really helped me with that. He said, you know, guys in the Central Valley have been you know, growing carrots forever and they just keep using chemicals and they have the same problems. There's got to be another way to solve this. So it was a, it was kind of a sea change around here, which was great. And it's spread, you know, throughout agriculture, you know, nationwide, which is really, really nice. Um, moving on, you and Larry, early 90s, I think you guys went your separate ways. And so you had to find a new home for Frog's Leap. I think down by, it's called the Red Barn. Tell us about that whole era for frogs. 
Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I mean, it was it was really exciting to see uh, Larry, who always had an interest in wine, but he was a medical doctor. He was supposed to be the money in the partnership, but he had a little trouble holding on to wives. So that that wasn't uh, really the role he ended up playing. He was, uh, but he was uh, always excited about that and really wanted to get in the wine business himself. And um, and so we decided at one point well, we needed to start a second winery. So we started Turley, uh, so Larry and I could split and each have our own winery. So he started a new winery, Turley, at the old location, the old Frog Farm, which, of course, was his home. And uh, and we took uh, Frog's Leap, uh, the old winery, to a new location. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I was on the board of the wine service co-op with uh, uh, Chuck Carpey, who uh, he and his partners owned this old red barn uh, down in Rutherford. We all knew about it. Uh, but uh, it had 40 acres of dead vineyard, and uh, the barn was falling over. <laughs> and it was uh, no, it was a, it was a uh, basically a toxic waste dump around here. And uh, <laughs> I said, "That looks perfect, Chuck. Any chance you does <laughs> lease me that?" And uh, and he eventually sold that property to us. And uh, we moved down here and straightened up the barn and replanted the vineyard and planted a few posies. And this is home now uh, after uh, what's that? Almost uh, twenty five years or more. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful property. And Chuck Carpy. Many folks don't know that name. He was uh, one of the original partners in Fremark Abbey, as I recall, and also Rutherford Hill. This is back in the kind of heyday of Fremark back in the 70s and Rutherford Hills being developed. But um, longtime Napa Valley resident and just did wonderful things for this whole valley and just uh, one of, you know, one of the founding fathers that no one knows about, but great family. So glad you... Yeah, a a gentle giant and a great... uh, a great hero of mine. Mm-hmm. So you you got the red barn. You guys have moved in. You've uh, oh you started buying. Talk to me about the Rossi Vineyard because I remember you, you told me about this for years. It's because you get you get the fruit and I think you're living there now, right? Yeah. Well, you, you know, um, a winery is only complete when it grows its own grapes, and um, that's why I'm so you know excited that when Rory came back on, he he really wanted to get involved in the vineyards. We'll we'll get to that in a second. But uh, uh, acquiring vineyards in Napa, particularly if you're bootstrapping, is is a, a laborious. We uh, <laughs> you know takes time, and uh, so we had uh, we had bought 30 acres over on the west side of Rutherford uh, uh, in '87. Uh, and then we uh, brought the red barn here in 94. We added 40 uh, acres of vineyard. And then um, we bought a vineyard down at the end of Galleron, well, a piece of ground down at the end of Galleron Lane in um, 98 from Alice Galleron. And that's where we grow our Sauvignon Blanc. And then we uh, started buying some grapes from uh, Louise and Ray Rossi at the, the famous Rossi Ranch, uh, which had been in their family since uh, 1908. And, uh, and then as they got older into their 80s and 90s, we... Uh, started uh, helping them with their vineyard work and uh, and the long and the short of it when um, uh, Louise passed in 2007 she was the last of the family members uh, she had uh, given us an opportunity to uh, buy the vineyard um, it, as long as we put it into the land trust and preserved it as it was and uh, that's what we committed to doing so we bought that property in 07 that's another 50 acres and that's really kind of uh, closed the loop for us that's why we're now essentially a state grown on most of our wines with the exception of um, the Chardonnay, which we still buy from Tony Truchard. So that completed the circle for us uh, and turned us into the estate winery we are today. And uh, 
given Rory uh, 200 acres to farm with his mentor, uh, Frank Leeds, and uh, I was glad to turn that responsibility over to him uh, as time's come along. So he can be up at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, <laughs> fighting Frost instead of me. <laughs> All right, I, we're going to get to Rory in a second, but before we do, give, give, me, the, give me the lineup. What's, what's the lineup of Frog's Leap Wines these days? What, what are you guys making? Well, we're fairly unique in that half of our production is white wine, and we've been with Sauvignon Blanc really from the very beginning. It's a variety I loved. One of my first trip to Europe was to Sancerre, and I fell in love with this idea that our wine uh, spoke to the area, that the food, that the culture, everything uh, um, evolved around this beautiful grape Sauvignon Blanc. So it was not a popular variety when we uh, pine and worked with it. Uh, Mondavi was making a Fumé Blanc, but... Uh, uh, 81. We were really kind of champions of Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, um, we added a Chardonnay because that, uh, my friend Tony Truchard offered us the grapes in 85. He had planted them in 79. So we've been working the same vineyard for uh, all these years. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, as we added vineyards, we've always loved Zinfandel, which is a major part of our production. A little bit of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. And um, uh, you know, we now uh, have an estate-grown uh, Rutherford Bench Cabernet Sauvignon that is just just unbelievable, um, <clears throat> and uh, we love it as well. And uh, so that fills out the lineup. But uh, you know, uh, we we also we have a bunch of other things that Rory can talk about that are interesting. Uh, everything from Charbonneau to Moved that we uh, Petit Sarah that we're having lots of fun with making different wines. So there's always something going on here that's outside of our core uh, five wines. Uh, that we're always experimenting and having fun with, and um, you know, it, it, it's kind of a kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, when I came to Napa in '75, I mean Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, there were more. There was more uh, Sauvignon Vert than there was Cabernet Sauvignon. I right, think. right. And I remember so, that. Uh, some of these old varieties have uh, nostalgia and maybe have a, a greater role as we move forward with climate change. And, the, and so, it's nice to stay in touch with these older varieties as well. Well, I'm with you, and we've all we've all tried things through the years, and some things work out, some things don't. You know, we made a Sangiovese cab blend for ten years, Firebreak, which was a lot of fun at the time, but you know that that's gone by the wayside. But I got to ask you one last question because it was the late '90s, Leapfrog Milch. Help me about help. Tell me this story. You actually had a Leiden Hosen party in Mount View Hotel in Calistoga. Come on. one last story, and then we get to Rory. Leapfrog Milch. What the heck was that, John? Well, when we started buying uh, grapes from the Rossies, they uh, you know they had a little Cabernet Sauvignon, a little Sauvignon Blanc, which we were desperate to get and glad to get it. But they said, uh, well, you know, we have this Riesling as well. Well, what the hell was I going to do with Riesling, you know? <laughs> and so we brought it back to the winery, and what are we going to do with this? Because no one was, I mean, Riesling was not exactly thought to be a major variety in the Napa Valley at this point. But we had to buy the grapes to get the other grapes. And uh, and so we uh, tried to come up with original ideas to get rid of uh, of these Riesling grapes. So we... Uh, we made a sweet wine the first year that was tremendous that we called Frog and Baronauschlese, but they were all plays <laughs> on names of, a, right. of German Riesling names. And uh, and then um, uh, <laughs> and then we, we had to get rid of some more of it. And uh, so we made this beautiful little delicate uh, white wine from Riesling. Uh, uh, and we, we knew we couldn't sell it as Riesling, so I thought, you know, when, when I grew up— uh, you know, if you really wanted to get after the Matus and the Lancers, uh, Leapfrau uh, Milch was the German wine that you could afford to buy. And so uh, <laughs> I thought Leapfrog Milch would be a perfect way to uh, market Riesling. 
and that turned out not to be the case, as it. <laughs> but we still have a few bottles of it. And it's absolutely delicious. And, uh, <laughs> so there may be a resurgence of leapfrog milk. Stay tuned. All right, all right. I will. I will. Well, thanks, man. Um, okay, Rory. Getting back to you. I've talked with people on this this show with who've grown up at wineries, but uh, I think you're the only one that grew up at two wineries. You got your dad's Frog's Leap and your mom's. Trace Saboris, right? And were you working at both places? What was that all about? Working at both places, uh, growing up around it. I mean, my earliest memories really are, are of my mom and dad out on the being road warriors and, oh, okay, kids, we're going on vacation. And vacation turned out to be uh, six winemaker dinners and a bunch of trade <laughs> visits. And, uh, um, you know, but, you know, was, our way of going on family vacation was going out to, to sell wine. And uh, being there when uh, my mom uh, took Trace Saboras on her own, and yeah, it's been a, a, a journey back to come to to join the family and um, really get, get involved with both wineries, and still doing that. Was up the other night spraying at Trace Saboras and uh, uh, trying to fix the tractor so that it went forward, not backwards, and uh, just uh, staying involved on on. Uh, on, on every level there, so it makes a uh, Christmas pretty uh, pretty interesting because we line everybody's wines up between uh, uh, the Frog's Leap wines and the Trace Saboras wines, and of course my stepdad John John Ingelsberger's got all of his wines, and so I've got my own wines. My brother's making hard cider, and uh, so we got you know twenty five bottles on the counter by the time we're uh, all, it's all said and done. Well, um, who's the de- who's the designated driver at those things? Anyway, uh, my, my two-year-old, you know, <laughs> carrying on in the family tradition. There you go. Oh, that sounds great. So right now your role at Frogs is what? Are you running the vineyards? Mostly on the vineyard side, yeah. So, okay. um, you know, keeping up with the day-to-day, writing the work orders, um, really working with uh, my mentor in the vineyards, Frank Leeds, uh, who, you know, really brought a, a, a lot of the kind of complete farming picture to us in the vineyards. Um I met his daughter Lauren in preschool, and so uh, that was another piece of the the Frog's Leap puzzle, and uh, another long time relationship with the family here. Um, and that was kind of my entry point coming out of school, coming back into uh, the family business was um, speaking Spanish, which was a big part of that, mm-hmm. and uh, coming back into the fold. Um, you know, not really coming directly back into the winery, but instead just getting out there. Was on the vineyard crew for for five years, um, pruning, suckering, leafing, um, doing everything, but but picking. Because by the time I got to picking, I started cutting my hands too many times. Um, yeah, I know that and, one. Uh, yeah. And helping my dad out in the vine- in the in the winery, and so that's uh, it was kind of my journey back into it, and that's I've taken that on full time now. That's great. So, but before we get back to that, let's let's bounce back to childhood. So, I don't know if you remember this, but boy, I do, and I'm sure John does. I every once in a while, it would get super cold, and that pond back at uh, your mom's place would freeze over. And I remember <laughs> going out there a couple times. We used to play broom ball. We'd bring brooms and play like hockey with the soccer ball. You remember that? I do. It was the winner <laughs> of uh, the one I remember the best is the it was when it snowed on the valley floor. So this is ninety or ninety one, I think. Uh, one of one of the, you know, so I was just six years old, but uh, yeah, the pond froze over, and uh, all you yahoos got together to to play uh, to get drunk and play ice hockey on a pond, which was about 
as I remember, uh, about three quarters frozen, or uh, three yeah. quarters of it was playable. But yeah. when the puck would go down to the other end, it was kind of you had to draw straws as to who was going to go get it. No, and eventually, I'm, somebody did fall through the ice. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Good. It was the same. I was thinking about that this morning. I go, God, did that really happen? Because I remember that somehow the word got out because everybody's like, "Bring your kids," because you know my three kids were you know same age as you and your brother and sister. So. You guys were all whatever six, seven, eight, nine, but it was a it was a scream. Um, but yeah, then it got kind of weird because the ice started cracking, and yeah, someone went in. A little scary, but it was fun. All, all of a sudden, it's like, wait a second, we could die out here. Yeah, yeah, I, it was probably your father's idea. Thanks, John. Anyway, <laughs> everyone um, had plenty of antifreeze. <laughs> <laughs> so high school was uh, where was high school? Saint a Public High School. Um, all public schools here in Saint Helena, and. Uh, yeah, grew up a, a valley kid. Um, yeah, went to school uh, with your uh, with your kids. Uh, I think both of them a little bit younger than me, but uh, not too far off. And so, remember going over uh, to your guys' house uh, growing up and hanging out by the pool. Yeah, um, on, a, on the hot days. Oh yeah, pool basketball. You guys, were you in? The, you remember that one? I know John does. Do. Is there one day? I, I do. Yeah, <laughs> those games got a little little physical. I remember that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're growing up. So as you're getting out of high school, what are you thinking? Are you thinking the wine business, or it's like, man, I've been doing this. I need to get away from this. Where, where was your head at on this this whole thing? Well, as you as you probably know, and you know, it's it's complicated. I always loved the wine business. I always loved being around the vineyards, um, and really, I think more than, more than anything, I knew above uh, beyond that. I knew it was an extremely special place here. Uh, I was always an outdoors kid. I was lucky to. Have my parents be very very outgoing, very adventurous, and so we were always hiking, always going places. Uh, my mom can probably run up a mountain um, with with the energy she has, and so Napa is a pretty uh, Napa is a pretty boring place if you're not into the outdoors. Um, when you're a, when you're a teenager, it's not yet uh, time to go to tasting rooms and, t- and taste wine. And if you're into malls and movie theaters, it's it's a kind of a slow place, uh, but I loved it and still love the Valley uh, a lot. With that said, I didn't want to uh, just kind of immediately go right into the uh, wine business. I had other interests, um, loved reading, loved uh, kind of some other academic pursuits and knew I wanted to do something different before I came back into the wine business, if I were to come back into the wine business. And and, and knew my dad's story of having... uh, you know, bootstrap for for lack of a better term, and it didn't seem right to just sort of uh, jump right into it uh, uh, right after high school or even right after uh, right after college. Good. So, uh, so where was college? College was at St. John's College in uh, in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I remember <laughs> signing up for school and uh, having to describe to my brother where Maryland was, um, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, he's kind of looking at me like, "Wow, you chose about as far away from from home as you could get." It is actually, isn't it? It is the farthest away. You know, it it, it felt pretty far away, and uh, you know, we'd been back to the East Coast many times as kids. We always went back there for Thanksgiving, um, which is always a little funny bringing out uh, little Johnny's wine that he'd been making for for thirty years for uh, to Thanksgiving, where nobody would dare drink it. Um, right. But it was, uh, you know, been back to the East Coast, but it had never had that f- full experience of being away and that's 
what I wanted. I, I wanted. I knew I needed to create distance and create a longing for Napa if I were going to come back and, and um, be able to do my own thing. And your dad mentioned you went to Cornell also. Was that after St. John's? Yeah, so St. John's, it wasn't a direct path exactly. Um, so I um, did my first couple of years at St. John's, which uh, for those of you that don't know, it's it's a, it's a it has nothing to do with wine whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with anything uh, uh, real concrete, you might say. It's a great book school, so you uh, kind of sit around reading books, works of philosophy and poetry in the in the in the original Greek, and uh, it's this. The whole idea is that you're trying to generate ideas, stimulate ideas, learn how to think. Um, and I took about two years of that, and I liked it, but figured I would get my hands dirty. So I did take a, a year off from school and worked harvest. Okay. And that ended up being pretty critical. I had uh, fallen in love with the idea of Barolo and Barbaresco, just reading the, the World Atlas of Wine as a kid. And so went and traveled there, did a stage in Barolo. And uh, then flipped harvests and did a stage down in uh, Argentina and Mendoza after that. And that was really where the whole coming into back into the fold uh, of, the, of the wine business really started to take some shape. Um, I didn't know Italian when I went to Italy to, to work uh, the harvest there. And basically got to the end of that and uh, realized that if I enjoyed doing this uh, while getting yelled at in a language I barely understood – um, then maybe this was something I could end up doing. And it, it was where, in Italy, is where I really had my first aha moment with wine. Okay. Uh, where I had been uh, working, worked there for about uh, four months and, uh, you know, started in the summer and uh, worked all the way through harvest. So we get to the end of uh, the harvest there and uh, we have the big blowout dinner with all the, uh, all the vineyard workers, all the cellar workers, and uh, had been drinking basically nothing but Arnais, Nebbiolo, uh, Barbera, and Dolcetto for, for four months. But I'd brought one bottle of Cabernet from, uh, uh, from Frog Sleep with me just to share. And it was that experience of having been 6,000 miles removed for so long and then opening up this bottle of Napa Cabernet. And it was like being transported 6,000 miles back home uh, huh. just instantly. And it was... I'd never had that. I'd grown up around uh, Napa wine, obviously. I'd had plenty of Cabernet in my life, but I'd never had that experience before. I'd never been transported in that way, and it required that kind of distance to really have that revelation. And I thought at that moment, A, it was a beautiful thing to experience, and I thought that that, that right there is something worth doing. Um, it's, this isn't just booze. It's not just a glass of wine. This is something... Uh, pretty special that to be able to transport. And so that sat in my mind as I finished my couple, my, the last couple of years at St. John's, uh, did a, uh, another stage right after St. John's before going to, uh, to Cornell. And, uh, they still didn't have a graduate program in wine, uh, in winemaking. So I was part of the flavor chemistry, uh, department, yeah, actually working mostly out of Geneva. Uh, okay. but that was how I kind of, that was my way of getting, being a TA and uh, being a research assistant and getting essentially paid to, to learn chemistry uh, at Cornell. Man, that's a great story. So that's when it clicked after that. Isn't that amazing? We've, everybody's got a, a moment where it kind of clicks, you know, whether, whether it's wine or anything you do. So finished up at Cornell, and then uh, – so at this point, you're probably 
beaten a path back to Napa? Because is that the is that what happened? Yeah, you know, it was uh, I at that point I had been about ten years on the East Coast, and uh, between uh, travel and school, and uh, um, met my future wife back there, and. Uh, I was uh, I was getting cold, you know. I was, I, mean, I was still a California kid, but it was it was the experience. I remember uh, being at St. John's my freshman year, and it it snowed on April first. It was a big blizzard year in, in Annapolis, and I just I just started crying. I, I couldn't handle. It. I, I was just I was so I was so soft. Um, I eventually got used to it and became accustomed. But Ithaca was a whole nother uh, dimension of cold, and. Uh, you know, eventually just kind of had to, I had to get out of the Northeast and had to come back home. Uh, my uh, dad had offered a, an internship, a harvest internship at Frog Sleep in 2010. And so I came back in uh, late summer 2010 to uh, to work that harvest for Frog Sleep. Um, and yeah, I, was, I was, I was going to ask you about that. So, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm a veteran of a father-son working relationship. So, yeah. So, did you have to apply? Did you have to interview? I mean, you know, was he was he tough to work for? You know, first job. What was what was it like in the beginning with you two guys? Well, you know, when when my my dad drives off every other intern, uh, you know, he had to had to have somebody come in and uh, and stomp the grapes. Now it was, um, you know, it's it, as as you know, it's this tension between wanting to wanting the family to join the fold and not wanting to push or pull too hard and. Uh, wanting to make sure that there's a that there's something there, um, so coming back and having done these stages before, um, having worked um, elsewhere, I had never actually done any uh, formal harvest work at, at Frog Sleep. I kind of grown up in the summers tying vines out uh, for Frank out in the vineyard, or uh, working for our resident engineer Brad Lusk, uh, repairing the red barn. In the winters and summers, but had never uh, held down a, a formal internship here at the winery. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll give credit to my dad. It was I didn't really work for him. Um, I worked for Pablo, right? Um, our our seller, our longtime seller master, now winemaker. Uh, I worked for him. I worked for the guys on the crew, and that was the way that really worked out very well in in 2010. And it set the kind of a template for coming back to Frog Sleep um, in. 2012 for a full-time position. Well, part started as part-time, but it, it became important to not work for my dad, but to work for everybody else who makes things click at Frog Sleep. We talk about being a family winery, but it's it's not so much about ownership as, as having these kinds of generations of people who uh, tie into the story of Frog Sleep, and that's been extremely important to us for a long time. So I, I still feel like I I work for them, um, and not I don't work for my dad. That kind of thing. Yeah, I'm with you. That's uh, that's smart, John. You're a smart father. Good job. Don't have him work for you directly, all indirect, <laughs> all indirect. But trust, but trust me, Rory. He was he was going behind your back talking to Pablo and those other guys saying, "Okay, how's he doing? How's he doing?" <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Dad, dads do that stuff. You know, that's the way it goes. So you're. You're at 2012, you're full-time at Frog's Leap, and I think you start your own winery. You got your own brand, right? Yeah, started the, the year before, actually, I came to, uh, to, to Frog's Leap. I, uh, after 2010, I had, a little, I had to take some time off from, uh, for an injury um, and kind of got bored, kind of got restless at that point and said, well, shit, I'm going I'm to start my own winery. I 
had fallen in love with this grape Charbonneau and thought that that was something pretty fun. And so it was looking for a way to learn all, all of the, the bones of the business, you might say. Didn't really want to start my own Cabernet project, or and certainly wouldn't call it a project kind of thing. Uh, it wanted to figure out how I could make my own thing and make my own mistakes on my own dime, and uh, and use that to to move forward in the, in the wine industry. That was pretty important to me to uh, to make some mistakes and learn all these different things um, that my dad had learned at the Taylor Wine Company that he had learned kind of over the years. Um, and I knew I had to learn it fairly quickly. So starting Calder Wine Company was my way of doing that while exploring some other fun grapes that didn't necessarily fit into the fold with Traceboras or, or Frog's Leap right away, um, but that I knew I wanted to have my hands in. You're wise beyond your years, my friend, because um, in this business, um, as your father knows, as you now know, it's all about the details, and it's, it's not glamorous. It's nitty gritty, and it's and you got to get the details covered, and you got to get them done on time with the right government agency or this or that, and um, you know the glory of harvest and making wine in a fermenting tank, which is just glorious. God love it, we all do, but um, the devil is truly in the details. So it's good for you for uh, taking that on, and learn it, because without that background, um, you can't really truly enjoy. The glamorous side of it, which is the, um, yeah, it's harvest and fermentations. I mean, nothing better. Uh, what what flavors are you making with, with Calder? You've got the, you said Charbono, right? Charbono, using some of that uh, Riesling uh, that was, that was uh, we kept in the ground. At, <laughs> the re- at, right, all, the, all the shit that Frogs is, has been wanting to make, you know, all of a sudden, the, the Riesling pops up again. The Riesling's back. It's funny, you know, the, the Leapfrog Milch has a, has a weird tie-in with Charbono, um, just because Dad, when you uh, after you started making leapfrog milch, uh, leapfrog milch, word got out that there was somebody in the valley buying riesling, um, and so all of a sudden you started getting calls left and right from uh, people who had riesling. And I remember you had a there was a, a guy on Manly Lane who had four acres <laughs> of uh, uh, of riesling and said, "Well, you know, I heard you're buying riesling. Can you, would you take some of this?" And uh, I remember you you bought that riesling and then eventually helped uh, him find a, find a buyer. Um, remind me of the guy's name, Dad. Ken, Ken and Ellen McGill, yeah. Ken and Ellen McGill. Um, <laughs> you know, an old grower. It's no longer Riesling. Um, but, you know, that story played out in a funny way where years after you stopped buying uh, Riesling from, uh, from Ken McGill, <clears throat> you got a call from Ken McGill saying, hey, John, you know, I've got all this, uh, got all this old wine that I've got stored downstairs and I don't want my kids to have it, and I don't, you know, the wife and I don't drink very much, very much anymore. So, uh, would you mind coming down and see if you want to buy it? And ended up being about ten cases of Inglenook and Charles Krug from the fifties and sixties. Oh my uh, just gosh! Completely, completely priceless wines, really. Um, certainly nowadays, and in that stash was a bunch of old Inglenook Charbonneau from the sixties uh, grape that. When we popped open that bottle, we had never heard of the grape before. Um, it was totally unknown to us, and we thought, well, how bad could it be? And it was, if I had to point out a second aha moment, uh, that that would be it. That was uh, a, a totally ethereal, magical bottle of 61 Inglenook Charbonneau that uh, kind of inspired Calder to come to be. Um, 
Pablo had some contacts uh, with Ignacio, the winemaker at the uh, now gone Summers Estate up in Calistoga that had some Charbonneau. Um, and it caused us to put put the brakes on about an acre of Cabernet, and it became an acre of Charbonneau instead at Rossi. Wow. So there's some, there's some Charbonneau planted at Rossi now. That's cool. So I've got a question for each of you guys. So you guys have been working together over 10 years, and you know, probably longer than that. Obviously, it's going really well. Two things for each of you guys. What, are the chal- what, what have been the challenges in working together, and what have been the joys? Rory, you go first. Challenges and joys. My dad and I are pretty, pretty simpatico, so we're not butting heads all the time, and I guess that's a, maybe a prerequisite for working so closely together. The, the challenges of the, the fact that <laughs> there, there's kind of no way of not taking everything personally <laughs> if, <laughs> if, uh, if you have a disagreement, but really it, it's more about um, trying to keep the winery going. And, and uh, that challenge is sort of one we face together, keeping business strong, keeping people happy, um, realizing that uh, the wine business is, is all-consuming. It's, uh, there's no... There's never any moment where you say, "Okay, well, I'm done for the day." There is no clock out time. You're, you know, quite apart from literally waking up at 2 a.m. for frost. There's the uh, the knowledge that I have of of my parents constantly working, constantly striving to to make the winery work and make it work for everybody here. And uh, I've now joined in that with with my dad. It's hmm. uh, it's lovely. It's that's challenging. It, um, it means that you have to really find your <laughs> find your, and plan your escapes uh, just for a, for a moment's rest. But it, it's an incredible privilege on my part to do that, and I know that at, at the same time. And so that's kind of the the main joy of it is, is right. realizing that it is it is something special. That challenge is not something that um, you should or can take for granted. Um, to have this opportunity, to having having worked in the vineyards, I knew that that was a special opportunity in itself, um, and being able to to be a part of that release you feel around harvest of all the tension of the growing season and uh, the bottling and supplies and taxes and all these things that wrap up into the year, and then that first load of grapes comes in on on the crush pad, the first Sauvignon Blanc of the season, and uh, your family's there. Um, that's a pretty sweet feeling. Uh, that's that's hard right. to beat. Thank you. That was beautiful. Kind of brings back memories of working with my dad. Oh, <laughs> all right. So, Papa John, how about you? Challenges and joys. <laughs> well, I think it, it, probably you can appreciate more than anyone, uh, Doug, or as much as anyone, that there's no uh, manual for how this all plays out, uh, how you keep a family winery family. And that's uh, every story is a little bit unique. And, uh, um, you know, it is, it, we, you know, Rory's got a brother and a sister. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed being married so much. I got married a second time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, that that's part of our family as well. And so, um, being cognizant of, of all that, how that all comes together there. Uh, um, the, it's a constant challenge to think about how to move that forward and make it all work and, and uh, make sure everyone has a, feels like they're part of, the, part of the process. So that is an ongoing uh, challenge. There's the mechanics of that, of course, the estate planning and all that. That has to be thoughtful, uh, thoughtfully building a team uh, at the winery that supports us. Uh, so it's a, 
it's a constant battle and certainly one that's hardly ever done. But with that comes so many joys, uh, as Rory uh, talked about. Uh, I think for me, uh, the big part of this is, you know, it's it's hard for an old farmer and an old winemaker to um, give up any control at all. You, you fought your whole life to get that control of your own vineyards and your own winemaking and your own equipment. And all of a sudden to uh, invite someone else, uh, to, even a family member, to come in. You know, every farmer wants his uh, uh, son to take over the farm, but none of them want to give up any control of the farm. And so uh, that's a <laughs> that's, that's a story as old as farming itself. And so, but I think uh, the the key to that is is build on respect. And so, Rory's put in the hard work to uh, gain my respect, and not only in the in the vineyards, but in the winemaking, um, and uh, that certainly helps uh, tremendously. We're we're not a hobby winery. We and we have. Um, we have employees, and we have vineyards to tend. We have businesses to uh, run, and uh, it uh, it's a, it's a lot. And um, uh, we just uh, uh, well, you know, the old, old story about the farmer who won the lottery, and they kept what you know, what are you going to do with all the money? And I think his answer was, "We'll just keep on farming till it's all gone." That's kind of how we <laughs> feel about that. <laughs> oh, oh, I like that one. Oh, thanks, man. Um, so. Tell us where folks can find both Frog's Leap and Calder Wines. Is there a website? What's what can folks? How can people find your guys' wines? We did decide it would be smart to invest in a website at one point. So well, someone uh, did. I'm yeah, sure someone did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's this newfangled internet thing. Um, yeah, so frogsleep.com and calderwine.com. Um, I'd be remiss in not mentioning Mom's Place, traceboris.com. But it's uh, um, yeah, that's that's where you find us. Great, great news. All right, you guys. Hey, again, thank you both for taking the time. Rory, especially you, you need to go take a nap. You just sneak out back and sleep in your truck. It's the best best place to take a nap. <laughs> and uh, so good to talk to both you guys, hear your stories. Thanks for sharing. Um, special time. So be good, and I'll see you out there, okay? Thanks, Doug. This has been a blast. All Thanks, right, guys. Doug. All right, have a good day. See ya. Well, that was fun catching up with those guys. John and Rory Williams have such an amazing story, which in a lot of ways is just getting started. If you get a chance, do yourself a big favor and track down wines from Frog's Leap and Caldor Wines. Thanks again for spending time with us here on The Taste. If you enjoy what you hear, please take a minute to rate and review us on the podcast platform you use. It helps other people discover the podcast. And if you ever want to send an email with some thoughts or ideas, please contact us at podcast at schafervineyards.com. We'll see you next time.